Today we're looking at cruise missiles, specifically the batch which arrived in Britain in the early 80s and which caused uproar. Now, Britain had been hosting nuclear weapons for a long time, of course, both our own and those from the Americans. That's part of the deal when you're in a military alliance, whether you like it or not. But when the cruise missiles arrived, there was rage and fear and protests like we'd never seen before. So in this episode, we'll ask what a cruise missile is, how it's different from other nukes, and why did their arrival here cause such fury? We talked in a previous episode about the Doodlebug. That's a nickname, of course, for the German V1 rockets, also known as the Flying Bombs, which were deployed against London in 1944. The Doodlebug was particularly terrifying, despite its cute nickname, because there wasn't much defence against it. It was so small that it couldn't be shot down. It could zip through the air defences, get right into the city, zoom in low along your street, and then the engine cuts out and it starts falling straight down towards you. The V-1 is like an early version of a cruise missile. They're both basically small, unpiloted aircraft. And they are launched, programmed to go straight to the target and explode. The cruise missiles we're talking about today could carry several nuclear warheads and could fly so low that they'd be practically impossible to detect on radar. Your defences might be looking up into the atmosphere, watching for incoming, world-ending ballistic missiles, the big ones, and then... In zip a few cruise missiles, nice and low, where no one was looking. He's also slow. Those huge ballistic missiles, which we all grew up in terror of, and I suppose still should be in terror of, could hit you in minutes. A massive ballistic missile can cover 3,000 miles in just 20 minutes. But a cruise missile would take six hours to go the same distance. But even their slowness was part of their power. Because when the Americans were challenged on cruise missiles, they said, but they're slow. So that means that we could clearly never use them to launch a first strike. If we wanted to launch a first strike, you obviously need to act fast. You need to surprise your enemy, a bolt from the blue. There's no point sending waves of cruise missiles over, trundling through the sky, taking hours to get there. 
So obviously, such a slow missile is clearly only ever going to be used in retaliation. They're useless for a first strike, so what's your problem? The other benefit of a cruise missile is that it's mobile. It's not stuck in one place, sitting in a huge silo, which is of course a great whopping big target for the enemy. You can move your cruise missiles, they can be launched from the backs of trucks, they can be driven into a forest where they'll be hidden from spy satellites. They are low and slow and they can run and hide. Oh, they are crafty little devils. So why did cruise missiles arrive in Britain in the early 80s? The story goes that they were introduced in response to a new Soviet missile called the SS-20. The big problem, as far as Western Europe was concerned, was that this new Soviet missile was medium range, meaning it couldn't hit America. No, this delight was to be reserved solely for Western Europe. But why is that a big deal? Surely if East and West went to war, we'd expect Western European targets to be hit. Well, the problem was that this new missile, specifically and clearly, did not threaten the Americans. We all know that the the main rule with NATO was collective defence, that an attack on one country is an attack on everyone. So, in theory, if an obscure place in Western Europe is hit, then big, mighty America must treat it as a direct attack on their own soil, even if they've no clue where this place even is. Hit one of us, and you've hit all of us. But, oh but, would that happen in practice, some people asked. If the Soviets chucked a few of these SS-20s around, destroying bits of Western Europe, was Ronald Reagan going to risk New York City or Washington DC or millions of Americans just because, I don't know, Leicester has been nuked? Sorry, Leicester. Is America really going to willingly enter a nuclear war when the Soviets have demonstrated they're willing to keep the horror strictly contained in Europe? So the Western European governments were not happy about this new situation. This new weapon which only threatens us, not America. The solution offered was for Western Europe to have similar missiles placed on their own soil to try and match and therefore deter the Soviets from using theirs. That way the Soviets would know that they couldn't target Leicester without getting a similar response. So NATO delivered a bunch of short and medium range missiles to West Germany, Britain, Italy and the Netherlands, all set to arrive in 1983. Okay, so let's zoom in on Britain. When the decision was announced that cruise was coming, there was anger. We were going to invite these American missiles onto our soil, protesters said, making ourselves a target for the Soviet Union. Well, I have to agree with Dominic Sandbrook here in his great book about the early 80s, Who Dares Wins? And he said, well, what was new about that? 
As I said at the beginning of the episode, Britain had been a target since the 1950s. With or without cruise missiles, we were still laden with nuclear weapons, both British and American, and we were liberally sprinkled with US air bases. Adding cruise missiles to the mix was hardly going to change whether or not the Soviets would come for us in a nuclear war. We were already out there. But there was an even bigger cause of anxiety and anger, and it concerned control of the cruise missiles. They were American, but they were on British soil. So who gets to decide whether to launch the things? The official stance was that any decision would be a joint US-British decision. But the fact remained that the Americans could turn the key and launch the missiles without British knowledge or consent. Now, there was a way around this problem. The Americans had offered what was known as a dual-key system, whereby both countries need to say yes before a launch is possible. So, the Americans would have to say yes as the owner of the missiles, and Britain would have to say yes as the country hosting the missiles. America had offered that system, but Margaret Thatcher said no. And the reason was the same old reason we've been hearing for so long now in Britain. Money. Purchasing that dual-key system would just be too expensive. The Americans had said, and I suppose you can't really blame them for this, um, if you want full control, great. But you'll have to buy them. If you buy them, you have ownership and you decide what to do with them. So cough up the money, then they're yours, and only you can decide when to launch. But the cost of that would have been one billion pounds. And so Margaret Thatcher said no. Instead, Britain simply hosted the missiles, she didn't buy them, and so the Americans retained full control, and in theory could start nuclear war from our soil without our consent. There was another reason why no dual-key system was ever introduced, and that was to do with the collective nature of the NATO alliance. The whole idea of NATO, of course, is that we act as one. But if Britain asked for a dual-key system, then the other missile hosts, uh, West Germany for example, would also feel pressure to ask for one. And if we then have a bunch of NATO countries demanding dual control, does it not perhaps imply that they don't fully trust the Americans to act in NATO's best interest? If we all act militarily as one, then why the division? Why all the calls for separate control? So there was anger amongst the population. Cruz uh, suggested to some people that we were subservient to America. We allowed them to use our land as a launch pad for their own weapons. We made ourselves a target And we didn't even have the backbone or the hard cash to buy ourselves a say over how these missiles were used. And where there is public anger, you will of course find protest. Nuclear protest wasn't new. The Aldermaston marches and Trafalgar Square rallies had been happening since the 50s. But the arrival of crews sparked a new protest, a massive protest one whose fame spread round the world and which became an icon of the Cold War. 
I refer, of course, to the Women's Peace Camp at Greenham Common. The cruise missiles were stored at Greenham Common in Berkshire and also at RAF Molesworth in Cambridgeshire. Now, these were simply storage sites, and if war drew closer, they'd be taken by truck to special secret launch sites. And one of the ladies who went on to organise the Greenham Peace Camp, when she read about the arrival of crews, she thought, well, they've made a bit of an error here. They're planting these missiles on the ground, meaning protesters can directly access the area. Now, you can't effectively protest against nuclear submarines as they're invisible most of the time. But here are the cruise missiles trundling into Greenham on trucks. They're on the ground, they're visible. We can go there and protest. We can stand right by the fence. Let's go. Now, I won't go into the Greenham Common camp here as it's a massive topic. Um, If you scroll back through my episode archive, you'll find one called, I think it's called Dirty Women and Angry Locals. And it gives you a brief look at how the (laughs) local population of Newbury in Berkshire Uh, how they reacted to the thousands of women who arrived at the base to join the peace camp. And yes, lots of them weren't happy. (laughs) But it was the simple fact that Cruz was so visible that helped spark the protest. Our nuclear submarines, of course, slip beneath the waves and they vanish. But here were the cruise missiles on the ground in the town of Newbury. And our protesters could grab the fence, they could chain themselves to the fence, or they could embrace the base on that day when thousands of women linked hands and totally surrounded the airbase perimeter. Or they could simply lace the fence with scraps of ribbon and shreds of poetry or stuff teddy bears through the barbed wire. Every day for years, Hundreds, sometimes thousands of women were rattling the gate, trying to climb the gate, singing at the gate, surrounding the fence, never giving the people inside a minute's peace. Special shout out this week for Tom Higgins, who increased his monthly donation to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. Let me also thank Linda Woolnough, Alan Christie, Helen McHale, Douglas Greenshields, Wynne Grant, Colin McGee, Ryan Outlaw, Damien Ryan and Peter Lee. Remember, if you want to support my podcast, you can offer a monthly donation through Patreon. So take a look, please, at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And you can get me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell, on Facebook under Nuclear Britain, or through my website, juliemcdowell.com. Thank you everyone for listening, and I'll be back next Monday with another episode.